capitalism. Denise Coman, a prominent French feminist activist, wrote, The oppression of women is very ancient. It existed before capitalism, which is also a system of oppression, but one that is more global in nature. Patriarchy can be defined in simple terms as the oppression and objectification of women by men. In addition to its strictly economic form, this oppression is expressed in many ways, notably through language, kinship relations, stereotypes, religion, and culture. The form oppression takes varies depending on whether you live in the North or the South, or in an urban or rural area. To be a feminist is thus to become aware of this oppression and, having realized that it is a system, to work to destroy it to help bring about the emancipation of women. That was Denise Coman. Over the centuries, women have collectively struggled for their rights. That struggle continues. Our guest today is Dr. Harriet Frad. She's a licensed mental health counselor and hypnotherapist in New York City. She's been in practice for many years. She received her doctorate degree from Columbia University's Teachers College and has done postdoctoral work at Yale University Medical School's Child Study Center. And now, Dr. Harriet Frad. What I want to do is talk about patriarchy and capitalism in the case of four or five men who became famous for mass molestations of women and also corruption and lying and the things that usually go along with sexual bullying. And they are Andrew Cuomo. I'll say their names first and say a little bit about who they are for people who don't know. Andrew Cuomo, Epstein, Cosby, there are Kelly, there are men of different ages, of different races, of different ethnicities, but what they have in common is using their power and their money to molest multiple women. The Me Too movement has brought this phenomenon to the public and we'll start with Andrew Cuomo. He was the governor of New York for many, many years. And he resigned because of the pressure of 11 women who complained of his sexual coercion of them. He was a powerful governor. He managed to put through right-wing legislation while posing as a liberal because he had several well, six Democratic state senators who actually voted with the Republicans and were right-wing. At any rate, since five out of the six were defeated by Democratic Socialists in New York, he no longer had that coalition. He also was heavily funded by the real estate lobby, which in New York City is a hugely powerful lobby, as well as multiple corporations including the biggest nursing home corporation in New York City and perhaps in the United States. And he did them the little favor of hiding from the public the statistics of the huge number of nursing home residents who were allowed to die of COVID. 
So he's also implicated in fraud, although that wasn't at the forefront of his recent resignation. But he also resigned because impeachment processes were in place. So he was a notorious bully, fraud committer. He got $5 million to write a description of how well he handled COVID in New York City. And he had his staff paid by the city working on it, which is also fraud. He's not in jail. He is just out of office. Bill Cosby was a famous comedian. Probably he had the most successful show in the United States about this wonderful black family man. And he is on record for abusing at least 80 women, many of whom testified that he became an avuncular, uncle-like warm presence in their lives as they began their careers in entertainment, looking to be a mentor because he was very powerful and very rich and had the most popular show on television. He then invited them for coffee, drugged them, and sexually molested them. He recently got out of jail. However, a new case of a 15-year-old girl who wasn't part of that has emerged that he may return to jail. R. Kelly was a famous black rap singer, very successful, who on the basis of his success and his introduction of young teens as young as 12 and up to about 20, on the basis of his introducing them to fame and possibility, molested them and kept them prisoner. He married one of them because he was in danger of being in trouble. He married her when she was 15. That's against the law, but they lied. And because he made a lot of money for his record company and for himself, he was able to get away with this for about 10 years. Molestation is interracial. In this case, it's all males. In any case, Jeffrey Epstein, who people may not also know, molested hundreds of girls. He was immensely wealthy. He had a deal with the American CIA because he gave the tapes of famous rich men raping children, basically teenagers and young teens, and kept them for the CIA. So he got away with it for a long time. At an earlier date in his sordid career, 35 women with the help of the Florida justice system brought him to justice and the head, the federal attorney of Florida, who was in charge of this, gave him a two-month sentence, which he had to fulfill in jail while being excused six days a week for 12 hours a day. Then an enterprising and important woman reporter in the Miami Herald brought up this case again because the federal prosecutor in Florida in charge of this case, when asked, why did you let this guy go away with a slap of the wrist, said, oh, it was above my pay grade. In other words, the Secret Services intervened. He was then rewarded with a cabinet post on the Trump administration because both Trump and Bill Clinton flew on Epstein's private airplane, the Lolita Express, the flight logs that included Bill Clinton's name and Donald Trump's name have never been revealed. 
finally things were getting too hot because the deal was revealed and all sorts of questions were being asked. Epstein was put in jail in the Federal Metropolitan Jail in New York, where he ostensibly committed suicide. They hushed up the reports of people hearing screaming from his cell at the time he committed suicide. And of course, people don't usually scream when they commit suicide. Also, his injuries were not entirely consistent with suicide, his hanging injuries. And in addition, the light outside his cell happened to be broken. And his cellmate, even though it was mandated that that cellmate had to be there for three months, was moved. The two women who were supposed to check in on him after every half an hour were both fast asleep. They were both working over double shifts. And one of them wasn't even uh, hired as a guard. She just happened to be working there from another department. And so although his suicide was highly, highly questionable, it passed. And as soon as this suicide happened, actually a little before, they broke into one of his mansions given to him by an enormously wealthy man. He ostensibly did stock transactions for very wealthy men and made an obscene amount of money from this. You have this scam going on of girls being flown to a slave island where they're repeatedly raped and molested and drugged as well and getting away with it because the tapes were given over to the CIA. When it looked like Epstein was in deep trouble and might be exposed, they blew up the safe. They entered, forcibly entered his mansion, a $71 million mansion, and blew up the safe. And somehow all those tapes just disappeared. They were tapes of people like Jess Staley, head of Barclays Bank, Black, the head of Apollo Corporate Management. In any case, the Epstein case is now forgotten by the media. Some of the scores of women molested and raped are trying to get some settlement from his estate. We'll see how that goes. What all these serial molesters and often rapists have in common is that they're all very powerful men who give access to livelihoods for women. The way that Jeffrey Epstein got his young woman is he had a procurer, Jelaine Maxwell, who's currently on trial, meet with these young girls and offer them massage jobs for good money. And they were homeless girls usually, or very poor girls with no other access to income. And when they came into his mansion and were molested, they were silenced by the grandeur of his mansion and by the money all around them. And so that we have a pattern here, a pattern of patriarchy and capitalism shaping one another. Now, I ought to define my terms because those terms are bandied about without precise definition. Patriarchy is a system in which 
men by virtue of being born to the male sex have primacy over women. The Orthodox Jewish prayer in the morning for a man says, thank you, God, that I was not born a woman. That's an example. But every Orthodox religion has a special place for women's subordination. And patriarchy means that men, by virtue of maleness, have command over women. Women can be raped or demeaned, and it is their shame if that happens to them, and no particular consequence to the man. Women are defined to be the helpmeets for men, to serve them emotionally, to serve them sexually, to serve them doing housework and childcare and social connection for them and their relatives and their children. And that has been under attack by the feminist movement, of which I am a founder of the second wave of that. And the feminist movement's basic principle is that women are humans, are fully humans and capable of everything that anyone else, including men, are capable of and have to be treated as important human beings. Capitalism is an economic system based on profit. No one hires you unless they're making more money off of your work than they pay you. So if you work, let's say, in a chair factory, your work contributes more value to that chair than you're paid. Or the capitalist in charge or the CEOs or board in charge would never hire you. The point is profit. The point is using a person's labor in order to profit and get more money for yourself. That can be mitigated quite a bit in terms of a powerful labor movement or a socialist government, neither of which we have in the United States. But that's what capitalism is about. And some of the revenue of capitalists is used to, let's say, have schools so that the workers you need can be literate if you need literate workers. And other services can be performed so that people can live and get to work and so on. But the main point of capitalism is profit. People say, why does Jeffrey Bezos endanger his Amazon workers by putting them too close together to pack the goods? Well, he's making more money, and that's the purpose of his life, more, more for him. So it is understandable. Capitalism and patriarchy combined in the abuse of this, these women. Cuomo had an office in which he hired mostly women, some men also, and bullied them in different ways in order to get his own primacy. And in the case of women, to use that primacy to get sexual services as well. He humiliated them by calling them honey and dearie and insisting that they wear high heels and lovely dresses because they were sexual servants as well. They were there to please him. The way Fox News used to require that its female operators have glass desks and wear short skirts and high heels so that the men could look at their legs. This is a whole culture of patriarchal privilege enhanced by and increased by capitalism. And when I talk about gender, what I'm talking about is the meaning system applied to sexual differences. Because 
there is no biological necessity of behavior in anything but reproduction in terms of male and female brains. The most exhaustive works on gender reveal that. So that we're talking about the cultural practices that go with and are assigned to male or female bodies. Okay, now, power, money, capitalist position, and fame all operated in these men's acquisition of female sexuality. Now, why would men be sex abusers? What is it about the male role that would allow that? And I should say that there are female capitalist sex abusers as well. They're far less numerous because there's only 3% of women in the United States who make $150,000 or more. However, where women have financial control over men's jobs, they often proposition and pressure them. The physical threat isn't there because women are less strong in our culture. But it isn't unknown for women to use their capitalist privilege to coerce men sexually as well. I don't think any of these things is inherent. I don't appreciate that power. I wouldn't want anyone to wield that power. I used to have a bumper sticker. The bumper sticker said, women who want equality with men lack ambition. Because what I want is a better human world, not more money for myself. That's my ambition, to create a better world. At any rate, all of these things combine because in a capitalist system, other people are supposed to serve you. These powerful figures use their position to get services of every kind. Cuomo had people write his book as well as be sexually available. Cosby had people adulating him because he was so famous and established and wealthy, and he got the people around him to cover it up. So that at the trials of these women, a 90-year-old man came forward and he said, I was the guard outside of Bill Cosby's door. I saw these very young women stagger out half-clothed, but I knew my job depended on saying nothing. Cosby would say to me, I'm interviewing talent. Don't bother us under any circumstances. And he, knowing his place as an employee, was quiet until he was retired from his job. In the case of R. Kelly, with these very young women who were tortured and sexually used, he used his fame and his connections at his recording studio to silence his critics. Epstein used his connections with the CIA and his wealth to silence his critics and get off with a minor sentence. And I should say in a cute little capitalist twist, after Epstein did receive his light sentence, he rehabilitated himself by being a philanthropist to science 
and he got people writing articles about what a boon he was to science, much as the Sackler family, who caused 600,000 deaths in the United States since the 1990s when they introduced OxyContin and made 17 billion out of it, they established themselves as philanthropists. So nobody looked twice. They were philanthropists in science and in medicine because these people can use their money in the capitalist press to give gifts to places like Harvard or Brown University or MIT to make themselves look like philanthropists instead of terribly corrupt outlaws. Someone like Weinstein was the most powerful man in Hollywood. He could make or break a woman's career. And those people who wouldn't have sex with him, he broke. He sent messages to the studios and to the other producers that they were difficult to work with and killed their careers. So people like Daryl Hannah, who was a popular, young, beautiful star, suddenly disappeared. No one would work with her. And he would do it because he would get women to work for him. He would get a woman to be his assistant to lure these women into meetings with him about contracts to be in the movies. And then the woman who was present initially would disappear. And he was a large, heavy man. And he would coerce the young woman there and tell them that the only way they would get anywhere was to have sex with him. And he would tell the more established stars that if they didn't have sex with him, he would destroy their careers. And he did do that. So he used his capitalist position to enhance his patriarchal privilege. All of these men were eventually discovered, exposed, and punished. However, the pattern remains. And it's an important pattern and exists across all races, across all religions, across all jobs, and all ethnicities. And the reason it persists is because of several things, and I should talk a little bit about gender. One of the problems with being male is that men are not allowed the full range of their vulnerabilities and emotions. Little boys are taught that to cry is to be a sissy. Little boys are allowed anger. They're allowed to fight, but they're not allowed tenderness. They're not allowed solace. They're not allowed declared loneliness. They're not allowed need. And they can place all those vulnerable emotions into a compartment and act out on the emotions they're allowed, which are rage and coercion. is not really an emotion, but rage and need for power. Women are the people who are the most powerful figures in every man's life. Every man grows up in a matriarchy of mothers, babysitters, daycare workers, 
nurses, and so the powerful figures that dominate their lives when they are most humiliated and helpless are women. And so a lot of men harbor a lot of hatred and anger at women and need to overpower them. Another factor is within our destructive gender divisions, men don't have present fathers who can show them what being a man is. So often men, and particularly men in communities where fathers are rarely present, define their manhood as being not woman, rejecting anything feminine. And a lot of the best emotions are feminine. Vulnerability, need, extension of yourself, emotional connection. And in their privation, they repress those emotions and therefore repress their compassion for the women that they dominate. And women are trained to take care. We, are, we, t- we play with dolls. In the United States, boys play with guns and rock'em, sock'em robots and other aggressive things. The United States is particularly terrible about this. But we are trained to be caretakers. We are trained to be nice, to be pleasant, to be pleasing. And we are allowed a full range of emotions except aggression and expression of anger, which is rarely allowed in a woman. Women are considered bitchy and unpleasant if they're aggressive. I've defined those things, and I think I've shown how they've worked in the cases of five men who have all been apprehended, unlike their millions out there who haven't, but that this is a case of patriarchy, male privilege economically and politically, though not emotionally, shaping dominating behavior. And women's need to please and be acquiescent, shaping their submission. I'd like to open this up to questions and protests or whatever you have. You're listening to Dr. Harriet Fred on patriarchy and capitalism. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and our special book offer, Rebecca Solnit, Men Explain Things to Me. Just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. I wonder if you could comment on your thinking about the role of, of wealth accumulation and the mechanisms that are involved, uh, and with particular regard to the role of, of the banks in the process. Well... Wealth accumulation is built into the American Constitution. Those Democratic lawmakers, I believe nine of them had slaves, not very democratic, to enslave people as property. Also, 
although we did have a wonderful thing in our constitution, some checks and balances on power, there was no check on wealth and wasn't buying the votes of everyone else or of many other people. Banks are a tool of capitalism and where they fail, the government comes in and the US government in 2008 came in to hold them up rather than hold up the people whose failed mortgages because banks were irresponsible in allocating them, failed and lost their homes. And I think what you have, where you have banks, is you have a system of privileging the privileged. One of the reasons Trump got so many loans from banks is because he could promise and lie about the value of the real estate he had, while he also lied about how much it cost in order to tax it. Banks were bailed out in the United States once they failed in 2008. And with the bailout money, bribed our lawmakers, who are often for sale, to extend their privileges and regain all the privileges they had that made them fail in the first place. Because where you have accumulated wealth and the power to deny or give people access to credit, you have enormous power. I just want to say one more thing. The banks did another very clever thing. What they did, instead of being taxed and having wealth taxed, they put out credit cards so they could make interest on people's indebtedness. Rather than give relief or push for higher salaries and better wages, they taxed the people through credit cards, which are one of the biggest forms of debt in the United States. It's the second biggest after college debt, which the banks are profiting from immeasurably and using the money we gave them in the bailout to lobby against free college education for America, the way seven European countries have it. I had a question and wondered if you had had a chance to look into the research uh, on the psychological impacts of money and uh, that Kathleen Voss and some others had done. And the reason I ask that is because the money that we use, like you say, is credit. It's um, not sovereign money. And the impacts that she had pointed out were things like uh, non-cooperation, hyper-individualism. Um, and these things are all happening, you know, on the uh, subconscious level. And I just wondered if you'd had a chance to take a look at that. And I, and I hope you will in the future and, and uh, let us know about what you think of that. Right. Well, I think, of course, there's psychological ramifications. There are psychological ramifications to everything. And the basic idea of capitalism is more for me. What's good is more. So that it never stops. You can always accumulate more if you're in a position to. And that psychology has infected a lot of the United States, where people think only of themselves and not of a community. It's a very different thing if you have an economy built on cooperatives where everybody makes the decisions and where they elect leaders who cannot be paid any more than the highest paid workers and who have regular terms and can be removed and where every worker has to participate. You can see the difference psychologically in Europe 
where the labor movement is very powerful in France and Germany because the highest paid union leader cannot be paid more than the highest paid worker in his union or her union. Makes a big difference. And so I think the psychology of a country in which the rich and famous are eulogized, praised, and adored just because they're rich and famous, no matter how they got their money, right. means that money is valued above all other human qualities. And that means that it's harder to join unions, which empower people and give them the psychological sense that they're somebody. There's an expression in English, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? In other words, if you have a good mind, you've got to be making money. Because what else do you do with your mind? Take care of other people? Figure it out? And so everything is shaping everything else. And so the economic system and its laws affect everyone. I also am an early childhood educator. The way you civilize children in the United States is you don't say, okay, Johnny, grab his tricycle and sell it back to him at the end of the day, right? No, you're supposed to share because people aren't even civilized unless they consider each other's needs. But then when the child is about, let's say, five and they're in the playground, you see scenes like a kid just got a nice new shiny truck and he's making, putting sand in it from somebody's pail and shovel. And at the end of the play, he tries to be a nice kid and he says to his friend with the pail and shovel, I'll give you my truck and you give me your pail and shovel. And the parent says, are you kidding? I paid $14 for that truck and gets up and grabs it. And so the child realized, wait a minute, those collective values that I learned in nursery school are contradicted here. And one learns that for the rest of one's life. So it becomes harder and harder to hold on to a sense of empathy and continuity with other human beings. And that psychologically is mitigated by joining with other people for the common good, whether it's joining a PTA, a parent-teacher association, or joining a union or a political party. And one of the things that happened to the United States is that when multinational corporations formed because jet transit was easy, because between faxes and computers, they could communicate so well with each other, so they outsourced good, well-paying union jobs to places like China, Bangladesh, India, where people make a fraction of what they earned in the United States. And there's no ecological protections either. What a boondoggle. And then they came home and bought our legislators, many of them. Only in the last 10 years, there's a big resentment of that. And more and more people are socialists who are elected. That's why Cuomo couldn't get across some of the things he wanted, because socialists replaced the capitalists that he counted on. But there has been a terrible thing that happened. There's a book called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, based on studies that have been repeated over and over again by somebody called Robert Altemeyer in Canada. And he found that there were fewer people in any organization 
whether it's PTAs, blood drives, political organizations, unions, than were in bowling leagues alone in 1970 in the United States. And that's particularly interesting because the mass outsourcing of American jobs happened in the 1970s. And people had to work many more jobs to gain anything like the income they had before. Women who did a lot of the volunteer work were forced into the labor force because two wages don't make what one wage, one white male wage, I should say, earned in the 19, early 1970s. And so people stopped participating. They became depressed. They sat in front of their TVs getting fat on crappy food. And it's only now that they're beginning to wake up that they've been robbed. So that there are all these changes that have happened. And they're changes that illustrate the way capitalism's movements and capitalism's values have psychological ramifications. I am finding myself extremely frustrated with um, my side of, of the politics, the progressive left. There seems to be a, a vast crater in the understanding of the role of money. And that misunderstanding was not always part of our culture. In fact, uh, monetary reform was the basis for the populist movement and the People's Party in the 1890s. Uh, they really got it back then, and somehow the left has lost that perspective. And I know you picked out s several villains here, and I think your real point is that these villains are really just representative of the system. And I've approached Richard Wolff, uh, Ralph Nader, uh, Chris Hedges, and I've asked them about the money system, and I always get the same answer. We need to break up the big banks, okay? And the problem is our money system needs the banks. The, the banks were rescued. If the banks were not rescued under our current system, our whole uh, economy would collapse because it's built upon the banks. A lot of people want to feel like there's a few bad apples in this bunch of rosy, ripe apples. They don't want to face that the system that they're living in is corrupted. And that one of the big corruptors is the banks. They don't want to face, and particularly in the United States, in our dying empire, people don't want to face what has brought about the death of our empire. Afghanistan is a great example. People were making money, and our, our most lucrative area is the war machine, is making armaments. And so the people who invested in armaments have made 100% profit over the pandemic because we've been killing people all over the world. And the banks are part of that capitalist system. All I can think of is that you're getting art get articles on Portside, on Alternet, on the vehicles that convey these things, talk about it with the Democratic Socialists of America, appeal to Richard Wolff and Chris Hedges and Cornell West and other leading intellectuals in the United States, because there are many lacunae on the left. The left also leaves out psychology. It, it talks about the importance of organizing, but what 
is the personal transformation of being empowered by a group and a sense of belonging. It also doesn't talk about the family as an institution. But just because people get pregnant doesn't mean they could take care of anybody. Children need help. There's lots of holes. And all you could do is try to fill them by talking to influential people and publishing whatever you can, however you can. We have to change the system because the system creates the imbalance and the, and the um, inequality that we see. It's built into it. I just want to tell you a little story which I find so indicative of the proper attitude. Bertolt Brecht, the famous communist poet and writer, probably the most famous poet and writer um, of the World War II era, after the Germans lost and Germany was split into East and West Germany, both East and West Germany offered him a theater where he could produce his plays subsidized by the state. And he chose East Germany. And when they said, why did you choose East Germany? He said, well, if I have a certain amount of life serum and I am a physician, I have two patients. I have to decide to whom to give it. The syphilitic dying old man or the pregnant prostitute. I chose the pregnant prostitute. Now, the East Germans weren't all that flattered by such a characterization. But, you know, those were his beliefs. He didn't have to have a good guy and a bad guy. And we have to train people not to make things into some kind of God and the devil mentality, which dwarfs humanity. So I agree with you. I wish I could give you an answer. Yeah, do this. We'll all be okay. I, too, am an early childhood educator, so I was uh, pleased to hear uh, that you have that connection. What I'm interested in is you've done a, an excellent job of expressing the importance of the system to people's behavior and attitudes. It's a vicious circle. How do we get off this wheel? What would you recommend as a psychologist or psychiatrist? What messages do we promote that will shift the attitudes and awaken people to the alternative? What will be most effective? One of the biggest shifts is recognizing our joint humanity and our need for each other, especially as the planet is threatened. We need one another to survive and emphasizing that over and over again that no one needs no, <laughs> needs no help, you know. In one of Brecht's poems, he says, you, I beg you, show not wrath or scorn, for we need help from every creature born. And I think common need and common need for collective solutions and then to stress unionization. I mean, one of the things that Martin Luther King said is he said, one of the best solutions to racism is the union, because you need to come together. And he pointed to the uh, Longshoremen's Union that used to not allow black people, and then black people became scabs and broke strikes, of course. But when they included black people and gave them equality, they won their strikes. But you need to be united and also to have the left understand what our side has is the mass of people. 
what their side has is the mass of money. So we mass of people have to get together and work together and not let divisions, especially those arbitrary divisions that capitalism wants to highlight, like racial divisions, gender divisions, ethnic divisions, and um, sexual divisions come between us, that humanity needs unity, I think, and then carry that out in every area. Those are good suggestions. Being more inclusive and uh, stressing the importance of uh, joining with others, even who maybe have a slightly different approach. Um, so I'm pleased and happy to have you reinforce the idea that the more we get together, the happier we'll be. Exactly. A lot of the left gets sidetracked into policing each other's microaggressions on race or gender or something else. Look, we should be considerate of one another, but the idea is what we have is each other. And I also want to say that there is proof, it's in a book called The Great Wurlitzer, that the FBI and CIA invested hundreds of thousands into the black, into the civil rights movement to make it black power, race only, and the women's movement, and Gloria Steinem, their key agent, to make ours a gender-only movement and not a movement for liberation, including liberation of gender stereotypes. So it's also a very right-wing move to be so divisive. In the interest of just getting women to work together more across the United States and then with other interest groups on other intersectional issues, do you have any thoughts about trying to formalize women's public authority in that way? Well, I think we have to be very worried about dividing ourselves by gender. Women don't all have the same concerns. Someone like Hillary Clinton, who was a fake feminist in my eyes, wanted a $12.50 minimum wage, even though 66% of minimum wage workers are women, many of them single mothers. And um, Bernie Sanders, a man, wanted the $15 minimum wage. So I think we have to be careful not to polarize people by gender or to assume that just because someone is female, she'll look out for other females. The Iroquois were a model for Susan B. Anthony in terms of gender equality. And when they had their meeting at Seneca Falls, they arranged their meeting with a big influence from the Iroquois, but of course the Iroquois was a matrilinear society. Children were the children of the mother, and their primary male figure was the mother's brother, and the whole tribe looked after them, and if a woman wanted to divorce her guy, she'd just put his belongings out of the tent, and he'd get the idea. It was a very different society, and the economy economics were different. As long as the male wage dominates women and children and there's no state help, women and children tend to be dependent and therefore in a lesser position because your economic position has a lot of clout. So I think that we should work on 
joining mass organizations and looking and having a women's caucus that makes sure that our issues on which we can unite are joined with men because I think it's divisive and destructive of the only possibility we have to win to be too divided. John, can I, can I clarify though, the, um, what, what I'm talking about is not, not going to one woman like Hillary Clinton and say, what do you think? Because you're a woman. When I say, when I talk about women's public authority, I'm, I'm basically thinking the same thing as a women's caucus where women come together right. and decide as a group together that what, the, then what they bring to the larger uh, electorate or what, whatever the situation is. People like the Gang of Four in the American Congress, of which the most vocal person is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have a whole coterie of women, whether it's Ayanna Presley or Elon Omar or Cori Bush or there's uh, Katie Porter in California or Barbara Lee that push humanitarian concerns and women's concerns and are looked to. But what's interesting in the U.S. Congress is many of the progressive forces in the U.S. Congress and also in the state um, government are women who are becoming powerful. And the most powerful unions in terms of their progressive view in the United States now are the Nurses Union, Nurses United, and also the flight attendants with Sarah Nelson. It was only Sarah Nelson who wanted a general strike when Trump wanted the airline workers to work for free. So I think there's a natural possibility for women to join together for the values that are the best things about being a woman. Empathy, kindness, connection, all of those. So I guess my question is, are you saying that capitalism has to go or are you just talking about uh, the tweaks, the essential tweaks that are necessary, the changes uh, to make it work for us better? Thank you. I'm talking about the capitalism has to go because a system based on profit of one person accumulating profit on the basis of others' labor, instead of doing it collectively, is immoral, it's theft, it's wrong. And I think socialism is far preferable. The socialisms have, you know, are also more efficient and doing better. You look at the Scandinavian countries, which are amalgams, but they're basically socialism, where the government makes sure that capitalists cannot do whatever they want to enhance their profit. So if in Sweden, if you want to shut down your factory, you have to get every single person that worked there an equivalent job so it doesn't pay. You might as well produce something else. And the socialist elements are what controls Germany, which is why their metal workers union, about 300,000 of them, just got a 22-hour work week because every German company has to have on its board of directors the workers who work there Socialism mitigates capitalism, and they exist together. Even in China, 
the reason it's the most successful growth economy in the world, even though it has its own you know, authoritarian problems politically, it's the most efficient with the highest growth rate because it doesn't allow capitalism to go uncontrolled. You need somebody to look out for the mass people's interest, and that's what socialism is about. It doesn't totally wipe out capitalism, but it certainly mitigates its damaging social effects, and that's what I'm for. And the United States is way behind on all the social benefits and the ease of life that our European colleagues have. Portugal, since 2016, is a coalition of the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, and the Green Party. And there have been huge improvements in their quality of life. Socialism is necessary to control capitalistic forces so they don't take over as they have much too much in the United States. You were just listening to Harriet Fred on Patriarchy and Capitalism. She spoke in New York in mid-September 2021. Dr. Harriet Fred is a licensed mental health counselor and hypnotherapist in New York City. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Chris Hedges, Kianga Yamata-Taylor, Noam Chomsky, Arundhati Roy, Ralph Nader, Angela Davis, and David Harvey. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Harriet Frad on Patriarchy and Capitalism, and for our special book offer, Rebecca Solnit's great essays, Men Explain Things to Me, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. That's one 800 444-1977, or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor, I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with the lady killers. Smash the patriarchy.
just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. You are listening to CGSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting in Calgary on Treaty 7 land and Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Choose 